0: Well, I want to tell you that when it comes to dad jokes, delivery is so much of the, the uh, important part about it. Uh, when a dad is trying to make a funny with his family, first he's got a captive audience. So that's where the temptation is just too strong to resist in that way. But the dad's, I got to say, delivery, you got to be a dad joke ninja, Right. To stand there with eyes wide open and rubbing your hands and then to ask, what do you call a a magic dog? A labber doodle? That doesn't work. It's got to come on subtly. Uh, it's got to come on easily. Um, it's it, it, Delivering a dad joke when it's expected is like a pencil with two erasers. It is pointless. <laughs> See? But... One thing I did learn from from the at-risk service here this morning is, I will give you a heads up, uh, because sometimes you can feel like, what's going on here when we're talking about such important subjects, and then I slide a dad joke on But But let me say, a, a truth of the universe that we are taught from God as our Heavenly Father is that dads should be protectors of our families. Now we've all experienced that to lesser and greater degrees. Isn't it wonderful that no matter what experience we have had with our earthly fathers, that God is our heavenly Father, that God is our adopted Father, that God has uh, is our good good Father? But dads should be able to be trusted. To be handled to handle what their kids go through. And with God the Father as our Heavenly Father, and as we learn from Hebrews, that Jesus is our big brother. Really, that, that is a big principle that Hebrews teaches us. That Jesus is our big brothers, our big brother. We can trust Christ for the biggest, baddest stuff. That's what we talk about here this morning. That we can trust Christ for the biggest, baddest stuff. Christ can be trusted for for the worst things that we deal with. Um, And and it required for him to go through the worst experiences imaginable. Speaking of this subject, um, we looked at two weeks ago in verses 10 through 11 of Hebrews 2 just to kind of review a little bit here. This speaks about Christ, uh, about God the Father and God the Son in some kind of unique ways. First, it says, for it was fitting for he, speaking about God the Father, describing him as for whom and by whom all things exist. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, speaking about God the Son, perfect through suffering. So without kind of saying, speaking about, speaking about, it was fitting for he for whom, the, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And then speaking of Christ, he says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, speaking of those who believe in Christ, have one source. And that one source is speaking about we have God as our source or as our Father. And then what an amazing statement that it follows up with. That is why he, Christ, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I mean, This is a really roundabout Hebrew way of getting to the idea that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit these three members of the Trinity embarked on this plan to enable us who follow Christ as our Savior to be adopted into God's family, for Him to be our Heavenly Father. This was, was, and this might sound like a weird father-son plan, right? But it was all for God's glory And for the good of God's adopted children, those who believe in Christ. And this father-son plan was really that God the Son would experience the unimaginable so that we uh, could face the biggest, baddest issues of life. And so we focus in on these truths in verses 14 through 18 of Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, speaking of Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, What is the biggest, baddest stuff that you can trust Christ to have handled? First of all, it's this. Trust that Jesus removed your scariest fear. There might be something that you scare bigger than death, but you really don't have a scarier fear than death itself. I mean, think about it. We keep going back to this in our narratives, particularly the highbrow Um, very intelligent narrative of the action movie, okay? In which there's a bad guy. And this bad guy is really, really bad because his plan is to cause death. Maybe it's a death to a family. Maybe it's death to a city. Maybe it's death to the whole world, right? Because he's just done with it. And and so you've got this bad guy and he is about to invoke the, the world's greatest fear, death. And then you got this good guy and his whole goal is to stop the death. And right it like the climax big finale part of the movie he reverses it and he brings death to the bad guy instead of the bad guy bringing death to the the other people. We keep going back to this in our narratives because this is the big meta narrative that we are a part of that the universe is a part of, that death is our scariest fear. And God's number one goal in the work and sacrifice and resurrection of his son was to solve the problem of death. Not to make it so that we would not die physically, but that those who follow Christ as their Savior do not have to fear it. We see in verses 14 through 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Everyone's scariest fear is death. Interestingly, Jesus destroyed the devil and delivered believers from the fear of death what does it say through death he did this through his own death or as 1 peter 3:18 tells us for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit that's how he did it you now about this enemy the devil It's clear that Jesus had no interest in making this guy his friend. This is what Jesus says about him in John 8. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what Jesus says about the devil. The one who has the power of death. Through his death as a man, Jesus rendered the devil powerless. It's what we see here. So how did the devil gain this, what's called the power of death here? We gave it to him. We gave it to him by choosing to uh, take our legitimate needs that we have been given, we have legitimate needs, God-given needs for intimacy, for accomplishment, for security, for, for adventure. And, and, and when we sin is when we take those legitimate needs and we seek to meet those needs outside of God's plan for us. And when we chose to do that, we allowed sin and death to enter into this world. Or as Romans 5.12 tells us, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We ask ourselves though, has the devil been destroyed? I mean, mean, he's at work today. This term destroy, it indicates an annulment of power. Um, The annulment is, of the, that power of death over those whom Christ has redeemed. Or as 1 John 3, 8 puts it, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I appreciate what the uh, ESV Study Bible says. Jesus' death, by cleansing his followers of sin, destroys the death grip of the devil. Unsaved people, though, let me say, are rightfully slaves of the devil because of their rightful fear of death. If someone does not know Christ as their Savior, their fear of death is rightful. They should be afraid of death. But, but he, Jesus, set us free from slavery to fear. He delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to to lifelong slavery. The most fearful moment, the most fearful moment for any follower of Christ would have been when Jesus hung his head in death. But yet that moment became God's victory moment. I like what F.F. Bruce says this, and it's kind of a long quote, so follow here with me. If ever death had appeared to be triumphant, it was when Jesus of Nazareth, disowned by the leaders of his nation, abandoned by his disciples, executed by the might of imperial Rome, breathed his last on the cross. His faithful followers had confidently expected him to be the destined liberator of Israel, and their hopes died with him. If ever a cause was lost, it was his. If ever the powers of evil were victorious, it was then. And yet, after a short time, his followers were exultingly proclaiming the crucified Jesus had conquered, had beaten, uh, I'm sorry. his followers were exultingly proclaiming the crucified Jesus to be the conqueror of death. That because of his resurrection. This is the unanimous witness of the New Testament writers. This is the assurance which nerved martyrs to face death boldly in his name. This sudden change from disillusionment to triumph can only be explained by the account, the account which the apostles gave, that their master rose from the dead and imparted to them the power of his risen life, End quote. The power that we have, the confidence that we have, that anyone could have to look at their scariest fear of death and say, I am not afraid of that, is because Jesus died and rose from the dead. And he offered to us resurrection life as well. Because when he died, he took the penalty of our sins upon himself. He experienced the wrath of God that we deserve And we can then exchange the penalty of our sins in trusting Christ for his righteousness and thereby stand before the Lord, welcomed with Christ as our brother and God as our father because we get to stand in the very righteousness of the God-man, Christ himself. Jesus took on flesh and blood so that he might die and deliver us from death by making the devil powerless to control us through death, through the fear of death. And our, our freedom from fear of death through Jesus' death and resurrection, it should empower us as we'll see. We're told in Hebrews 13, that now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with every good work that you may do his will working i'm sorry that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen Or as F.F. Bruce also says, by the death of their Savior, Christ's brothers and sisters are sanctified. His death has transformed the meaning of death for them. And for us, if you know Christ as your Savior. To us, his death means not judgment, but blessing. Not bondage, but liberation. And, And our own death, when it comes, takes its character from his Now, <clears throat> I'm going to give you my opinion on something. And it's going to... You know, it's we're always in danger of something seeming like a political statement or something. And unfortunately, there are some things that just should not be political. But, but we have a climate right now where everything is made political and everything is turned into an effort for political gain or the fear of political gain or something like that. But yesterday, for the first time... Um, We celebrated Juneteenth, or or it was was made a federal holiday. Uh, Juneteenth is something that African Americans have celebrated for years as celebrating the end of slavery in the United States. I want to tell you, I think this is something that is good for us to celebrate. No matter what color of our skin, I think the same way that a person that is cancer-free celebrates, remembers the day that they were that they were told that they were cancer-free. I think that Juneteenth is is our celebration of the freedom from a cancer on our nation. Uh, in the same way. Good Friday, Easter. These are intended to be mankind's holiday. To remember that we were set free from a slavery as well. And that slavery is to fear. And that fear was of death. That's what we're told here. That that we're not set free from death. I'm gonna die. If Christ does not return before now and then, you're going to die. You haven't been set free from death. You've been set free from the slavery of the fear of death. How amazing is that? Only Christ could set us free from that. You know, um, it is Dad Joke Sunday. I told you I was going to give you warning. I'm I'm a Dad Joke Ninja, but I, I won't... I won't sneak them up on you here this morning. But Dr. Truax shared with me uh, this morning that whenever his family would drive by a graveyard, he would tell them, you know why there's a fence around that graveyard, don't you? Because people are dying to get in there. Uh, Jane said it took him uh, several years to uh, expect uh, the 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 punchline. He must be really good at it. People are dying. Everyone is going to end up dead if Christ's return doesn't keep that from happening. But Jesus solved everyone's greatest fear the fear of death. He removes your scariest fear. You know, <clears throat> kids are supposed to feel like their dad is the biggest, baddest man that anyone could face. And we as dads screw that up sometimes. And we as dads sometimes make our kids feel like they should fear us. And and certainly that should not be the case in a physical sense. But but how is that usually communicated from one kid to another that their dad's the biggest, baddest man that anybody could face? They'll they'll make that boast: my dad can beat up your dad. Well, I gotta tell you, some of us who stand just under five foot six. That wears off sooner uh, for their kids than others. Uh, my son, uh, Larry, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but, you know, he's getting to know a kid from his football team, and he says, I, he met his dad. He tells me, Dad, his, his dad's huge. He could turn you into a pretzel. <laughs> what happened to my dad can beat up your dad? Come on. He hasn't seen me before. Lie. There you go, exactly. I'm going to keep that in mind. I'm going to write that on my mirror. (laughs) Jesus took care of your scariest fear. He beat up your scariest enemy. If he took care of your scariest fear, you can trust him with everything else that you might fear. Even though you have been set free from the fear of death, are you still a slave of the fear of death? Even though you have been set free from the fear of death, are you still a slave to any lesser fear? That's what's being communicated here. If he set us free from the fear of death, the slavery, of the fear of death. Anything else is child's play. He can be trusted. The fact is that the only difference between a poorly dressed man on a tricycle and a a well-dressed man on a bicycle is just a tire. But I can tell you what they have in common is they are both going to die one day. They're both going to die one day. And the question is whether or not they should be afraid of it. You know, you got to be careful when you buy sunglasses. you got to be careful that those sunglasses, and hopefully, you know, maybe you might be in a third world country or something like that, and you've still got to be careful. But usually they'll have a little sticker on them. It says 100% UV protected. Why is that so important? Well, think about it. When, when you put a pair of sunglasses on, that it, it eases the discomfort. Your pupils widen, letting in more uh, you know, light. If those sunglasses are not UV protected, then your pupils are widening. You feel like you're, you're okay when really you're not. UV rays are getting to your eyes that that wouldn't be otherwise. It'd be better to not have the sunglasses on and be squinting than to put on ones that don't protect your eyes and be wide open to it. And I'm going to tell you this. Religion is like those sunglasses that give no protection because it lies to people and makes them think they're okay when they're not. With Christ, we are guaranteed that our greatest fear has been taken care of through his death and resurrection. I want you to also trust that Jesus filled our biggest need. We read in verses 16 and 17, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's a You know, we're in the book of Hebrews, so he's terming it in Hebrews terms here. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus was made lower than the angels because the people that he came to save are lower than the angels. Because he came to save people not angels. And he describes people as the offspring of Abraham. Again, he's talking to Hebrews here, so he's using Hebrew terminology. And um, the offspring of Abraham, uh, Abraham was promised that his offspring would not just bring in the Messiah, but that every people of the world would be blessed through the bringing in of the Messiah. You can find this in Genesis 12, where God shares one of the first times when God shares his covenant with Abraham that the Jewish people, as we know them, would come through him. And verses 2-3 through tell us this, And I will make of you, speaking to Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be Blessed. Speaking of the blessing that would come through the Messiah, that comes through the people that come from Abraham. And of course we're told that all believers with with the uh, um, inauguration of the church in the New Testament, all those who trust in Christ are spiritually offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7 tells us, Know then that those of faith, it it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So don't get thrown off by the fact that when it says he helps the offspring of Abraham. He's speaking to the Hebrews, so he's speaking in Hebrew terms, but he's talking about anyone who trusts Christ as their Savior. And he was made like his brother in every way. Again, uh, Hebrews uh, continues to communicate to us this, this crazy idea that a believer in Christ has been adopted into God's family and Jesus then becomes their brother in that adopted family. And we're told in the Bible knowledge commentary, he knew that it was to be uh, he knew what it was to be a helpless baby, a growing child, a maturing adolescent. He knew the experiences of weariness, hunger and thirst. He knew what it was to be despised and rejected, to be lied about And falsely accused, he experienced physical suffering and death. All of this was a part of his training for his heavenly ministry as high priest. He was made like his brothers in every way. He suffered with us. And and through his suffering, he was made perfect. And this means that he became qualified to be our high priest, to be our representative before God the Father, He is merciful because he can identify with our troubles. And and he proved himself faithful because he endured trials and temptations without faltering. All of this explains how Jesus was able to finish his atoning work as high priest. And as we've been talking about, this all goes back to chapter 1. It explains how it is that Jesus, having made purification for sins, was able to sit down on his throne again. Nothing more needed to be done. He's unpacking the significance of what went into him being able to do that. It's because he had acted as our perfect High priest, and he was able to be our perfect high priest because he became perfect through his suffering. Plain and simple. What duty of a high priest did Jesus perform? And here we have a big theological term here that pops up every now and then in the New Testament. He made propitiation. This means to eliminate the roadblocks that alienate a deity. Okay, it's actually, uh, um, in New Testament times, this was a pagan term that was repatriated into Christianity. And typically, in uh, all man-based Christianity, I'm sorry, all man-based religions, basically everything except for biblical Christianity, treat the deity in this way. I'm going to worship the deity. Okay, this deity has a problem with me. I'm not like this deity or this deity is offended by me or something like that or, or just in a bad mood. And I'm going to worship this deity, I'm going to propitiate, I'm going to remove any roadblocks between me and that deity, and then when I get that deity into a good mood, I'm going to ask it for what I need. Uh, in the Muslim religion, Allah is, is, is very, very moody. And so how, what he is acting like on, on a given day cannot be predicted. But he's pleased by the death of infidels. And that is why in in suicide bombing, it's considered a a guaranteed ticket into paradise because at the moment that you die, you're making him happy. And you've propitiated the deity, you've removed the roadblocks, and you can slide in and enter into paradise in a good mood, with him in a good mood. This is all man-based religion. But the New Testament repatriates this term, propitiation, where, where the, the deity has a problem with the worshiper, and the worshiper is going to do just what he needs to do to remove that problem. But what's crazy about biblical Christianity is God is rightfully offended by our sin. And, and at the same time, God fixes the problem for us. We're never described as propitiating God. Jesus is described as making propitiation for us. Fixing the problem himself so that we could be in relationship with God. Jesus filled our deepest need. Deepest, and and, you know, our our biggest needs, they, they tend to change with the situation, right? I mean, compare these situations. Of somebody asking, "How can I help you?" All right? You walk into a store. It's Christmas Eve. You forget to buy something for your spouse, and the and the uh, the person working at the store says, "How can I help you?" All right. That's a little bit different than you're in the parking lot. There's nobody around, and you've got a dead battery in your car. Your car won't start, and somebody pulls up and says, "How can I help you?" Right? It varies a little bit with what the situation is, or, or more so even. You're standing at Culver's wondering if you should get French fries or cheese curds, and the worker says, "How can I help you?" Compared to that, that you're lounging on a raft, alone in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, for days, and a boat pulls up and they ask, "How can I help you?" Right? How important that help is kind of differs based on the the desperation of the situation and how maybe even how normal the problem is, here we're told that everyone is in the most desperate situation. Our greatest need is constant. It's a constant issue for every person. And it has to do with whether or not they have God as their adopted heavenly father or as their judge that is rightfully indignant toward them. And what we're told here is that greatest need was solved by God himself making propitiation, removing the roadblocks, removing the barriers. Everyone's constant greatest need is to have Jesus as their high priest and advocate. You know, and and children, they have needs that only their father can fill. I can remember my, my roommate from, from college, we we were spending time together, and it was shortly after Hannah, our first child, was born. And here she is like several weeks old, and, and Russ, my roommate, he's always been like deeply philosophical and, and, and all this, and he asked me what seems like a strange question, but, but you know, I knew what he was kind of asking and stuff, but he asked, why do you love her? And he wasn't like, stoic about it or anything but he was just fascinated with the situation. here's my friend from college and and now he's got this child and I you know I could say well she's cute she's fun she's I have to you know but but I, I was trying to think of you know what is the deepest idea that I could think of between uh, me and this child and my answer was because she needs me to. Because I'm her dad. Because she needs me. You may not have gotten the love that you need. I don't think any of us get the love that we perfectly need from our earthly fathers. But it does not change at all the fact that God is our perfectly, perfect heavenly father who is ready to give us exactly the love that we need. And he loves us by by meeting our greatest need in Christ. And it is Dad Joke Sunday. There's your warning. And I needed my dad when I was growing up, um, and I, I I needed it when he told me that I could be anyone that I wanted to be. Then I found out about identity theft, and so <laughs> Dad. You lied to me. No. He also told me, never buy anything with Velcro. It's always a (laughs) ripoff. Not only should you trust that Jesus removed your scariest fear and filled your biggest need. Trust that Jesus can help in your toughest moments. He says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered as a human, especially in his death. And and, I mean, imagine this. He suffered temptation while he was dying. He was tempted to be angry, to be unforgiving. And yet what did he pray? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We're especially told that he suffered when tempted. Notice that. Uh, how it words it. He himself has suffered when tempted. I mean, he suffered in ways that we cannot completely comprehend or it's understand. Imagine being the, create, the perfect creator of a perfect world and then walking amidst its suffering, its brokenness, and its death, all because of the sin that the ones that you created, and you created them to extend your dominion over that earth, they rebelled against you. Imagine the the suffering of being tempted when you were the perfect creator, walking through your creation with it in that shape. He was tempted in his flesh causing all type of suffering that we can never understand. And he can identify with us in our temptation, not in our sin. We'll see in Hebrews 4 verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And his sinlessness was absolutely necessary for his ministry, as we'll see in Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus, in being who he is in the world that we made the way that it is, became our perfect high priest through his suffering in this world. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you buy a butterball turkey, there's a hotline number on it. You know, that, that would be me. If, if it was my job to do the turkey, I would be calling that hotline, right? And apparently you can call that and they'll tell you how to cook the turkey. Can you imagine calling that hotline and getting this, hello? Uh, yeah, I'm calling to you know know how to make this turkey, I have no idea. I burned toast. I just I just pulled the shortest straw. You know, nobody wants a beer. It is Thanksgiving, you know. What help would that be? I mean the whole point is that you're gonna get somebody on the other line that knows, has some experience with cooking this turkey. You can trust this. When you call on God for help amid temptation, He is ready and able to help because a member of the Trinity was tempted in the very way that you are facing. I mentioned earlier that every temptation, that the the anatomy of every temptation is that it starts with a God-given need that we have. We have needs for things like security, for accomplishment, for, for adventure, for intimacy. And these are God-given needs that we've been given. And when we are tempted, it is when uh, God's enemy is saying, hey, you should meet that need in this way. Yeah, this way over here that God tells you not to do. Or this way over here that's just outside of the boundary that God put on meeting that need. And Jesus faced that every temptation in that way, to meet those needs in the way that God has told us not to meet them. And when you call on God for help amid temptation, he is there and listening. And our passage is establishing that Jesus did what he set out to do. And we'll see the results in chapter four, where we're told, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then we're told in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's talking about what's included in this is in moments of temptation. Think about this. Sin is our fault. Temptation is our fault. This broken world is our fault. And the habits, the bad habits that we have built are our fault. And it all has implications about with having to do with God's glory on this earth. You would think that the very moment that we would not want to go into God's presence, because he might be a little bit upset because he's told us to live in this way, and we're considering not listening to him and doing our own thing and meeting our own needs in our way, you would think that that's the moment that we would be like, uh, I hope he's not looking. But instead, we're told to come before his holy, righteous throne with confidence. In our dirtiest moment, to find grace, to find help in that time of need. Especially in that time of temptation. Because Jesus himself experienced the suffering of temptation. He is able to come to our aid when we are being tempted. Jesus could honestly reply to our pleas for strength, I know how it feels. He could honestly say, I know the joy of choosing to turn the temptation into an offering of worship and laying it on the altar of God. I know how that feels, and I know the joy of choosing to follow me anyways. That's what we find when we go to the throne of grace because we have a perfect high priest.